Bridgie Clary's husband set her on fire in the middle of their kitchen. He says it was because she was a fairy changeling, a fae creature imitating his real wife. After the good folk, fairies, stole Bridgie away, the only way for Michael to get his wife back was by killing the imposter changeling left in her place. Bridgie would then be returned to him. So he claimed. It was March 1895. After 12 days of Bridgie's illness and growing tension between the couple, Michael claims he became convinced that Bridgie was a changeling who had to be burned to release the real Bridgie. She would then arrive at a local fairy fort tied to a grey horse, just waiting to be freed. But that day never came. The burned body that lay on the kitchen floor was that of Bridgie Clary, the strong, queer seamstress who sold eggs and decorated her hat with feathers. So why did Michael Clary burn Bridgie? The tangle of fog belief, testimony and marital strife is difficult to make sense of, but I'm Zoe Delahunty-Light and I'm going to unravel it for you. If you're interested in pre-1950s true crime and everything else morbid, then please consider subscribing. And if you're listening on Spotify, if you give me a five-star review, that would be amazing. And on YouTube, if you'd like to comment and like the video, then the algorithm will love you and so will I. I have quite a small channel at the moment and I love doing these deep research old true crime cases so I'd love to bring you along with me. For this video I did months of research including reading original newspapers from the 1890s, reading a ton of books and reading up on Ireland and its folklore history. I'm actually part Irish myself and weirdly enough this case takes place in Clonmel, Tipperary which is actually where my Irish side of the family comes from so in a past life, Delahunty's might have even known Bridgie Clary. I also read court testimony from 1895 and corroborate. I also read court testimony from 1895 and contemporary reports of journalists who went to the scene of the crime to report on it firsthand. And I really haven't seen this case covered in this much depth anywhere else because this is going to be two parts. So get ready. This video and its follow-up contains upsetting accounts of domestic abuse. So if that's not something that you feel like you're in the right frame of mind for right now, I really urge you to stop and watch this another time because no true crime case is worth you sacrificing your mental health over. I'm just an autistic being sharing her special interest with you. So with that said, welcome to Ireland, 1895. Bridget Clary was born Bridget Boland on the 19th of February, 1867 in Tipperary, Ireland, where, like I said, my own family comes from. The youngest child and only daughter of Patrick and Bridget Boland, she was named after her mother, so to distinguish the two, I'll be calling our Bridget Bridgie, as this was her nickname. Bridgie was probably fairly spoiled as a child. Her mother and father were working class labourers, and with four older brothers named John, Michael, Edmund and William, it's likely that the brothers were the ones helping out the parents. Whereas Bridgie, being the youngest, was indulged, and I think this is proved by her confidence, which would blossom later in life. When reporters descended on her home village, Bridgie was described by locals as being queer, evidence of her independent streak, if you ask me. Bridgie was different from her older brothers in that she attended a local convent school in Drangan, benefiting from the education which her parents' generation and possibly her brothers would have missed out on. After school, Bridgie was apprenticed to a Clonmel dressmaker in the workroom of a draper's shop, which is a big deal. Her parents were labourers living in a mud-walled thatched cabin and they did everything they could to raise their daughter's station in life so she would be more comfortable than they. She was given an education and a valuable trade, both of which paid off. Her apprenticeship was so successful that after it was done, Bridgie was talented enough to be found making dresses and hats for the women of Clonmel. Bridgie was the apple of her dad's eye. In his court testimony, Patrick said, quote, 
Her mother and myself gave her a good trade. She was only 26 years of age, and she was a fine milliner and able to give us a bit of money. And when her mother died, she was the only one I had in the world to look to. He's speaking the absolute truth. Not only did Patrick and Bridget apprentice their youngest to a dressmaker, they also bought her a Singer sewing machine. An expensive investment, no doubt, and one that proves how much pressure was on Bridgie to provide for her elderly parents. By the time we meet Bridgie in this final chapter of her life, which it never should have been, she was of middle height, with brown hair, blue eyes, and was pretty enough for it to be commented upon by those who knew her. Those locals familiar with Bridgie made sure the journalists itching for a sensational report on what would become known as the witch-burning of Tipperary, which, like, don't even get me started on that choice of words, knew Bridgie for the person she really was. Quote, Industrious and a real helpmate, unquote. Bridgie was well known in the area not just for her dressmaking, but also because she sold eggs from her own hens. This was a smart move. Historian Angela Bork notes that women could make as much money in one day selling eggs as a man could labouring for a week. Financial smarts like these took an astute mind and a tenaciousness which you will come to see more of in Bridgie. Walking from house to house, selling eggs, caring for her hens, sewing dresses, wearing stylish clothes and a hat decorated with her hen's feathers, Bridgie was a force to be reckoned with. A journalist sent Clonmel to report on Bridgie's case wrote, quote, People speak of her as being a bit queer in her ways, and this they attribute to a certain superiority over the people with whom she came into contact. Unquote. I think we would have really liked her. In August 1887, Bridgie married Michael Clary, a cooper from Clonmel who she likely met when she was being apprenticed. Coopers make barrels, and at first this trade would keep Michael in Clonmel. After four years, Michael had a business lucrative enough for him to move permanently into Bridgie's cottage, making himself and his wife more moneyed than their impoverished parents. It showed in the way Bridgie dressed. Newspapers noted that Bridgie, quote, must have been a woman of some taste. Her attire on the night when she was stripped for that fatal burning is not that of every woman in the same social plane, and there are other bits in the evidence which indicate habits that are not common in women of her class. Unquote. Bridgie wasn't afraid to live the life she felt she deserved. She wasn't afraid to make her opinion known either. She was really a modern woman in the way she approached life, and it's a tale that we seldom hear nowadays. Often history was written by men back then, so we don't really get to hear tales of women who were confident and powerful and weird enough just to kind of stand out in everyday work, especially not those who belong to the labouring or the working class. I'm sure there's plenty of aristocrats who were given, I don't know, poems or something for being so quirky. Bridgie clearly had an eye for fashion. She didn't dress like the women surrounding her, and that doesn't make her a pick-me at all. Instead of the normal shawl worn over the head, Bridgie chose a black straw hat decorated with brown feathers from her own hens. The day she died, she was wearing a striped petticoat, grey-green stays, a navy flannel dress with a matching navy jacket, and black stockings. Each day she'd wear her most prized possessions, a pair of expensive, bright gold earrings. I think we all have an item like that. Something where when we pull it on, it makes us feel better about ourselves, maybe? Something we've treated ourselves to, and for Bridgie, a pair of expensive gold earrings certainly would have been that. Material possessions weren't all that mattered to Bridgie, though. Two pets were hers to cherish. Doty the cat and Badger the dog, who both adored her. She even trained Doty to climb onto her shoulders, petting the cat as its claws doubtless dug into her dresses. We can tell that Bridgie really did love her animals and this shows such a compassionate, endearing side to her because there's a tale of what happened with her and a priest that may be true, it may be conjuncture, but it's still really interesting to hear. Almost a century after Bridgie's murder in 1979, historian Thomas McGrath was told a story about Bridgie and Badger that had been passed down through the generations. The story goes that Bridgie was straining potatoes in her yard 
when the local priest rode by. Bridgie's dog Badger attacked the priest's horse, so he asked her to call off the dog, but Bridgie made no attempt to do so. The priest then kicked Badger out of his way. Bridgie, furious, retaliated by throwing the boiling water from the potatoes at the priest. Allegedly, the priest then told her that she would die a violent death, a death by fire. Now, it's doubtful whether the story is true, and I'm inclined to believe it's not, because it seems to rather add to the mythos around Bridget's link to the Fae, and set up the narrative that she somehow brought this upon herself. I hope I don't have to say much more about that topic, other than it's disgusting to infer that, and it's just victim-blaming to the extreme. If there is a grain of truth to the story, I'd wager it's in Bridgie's love for her dog, Badger. The fact that no harm was done to her person but she reacted as if it was she who had been kicked by the priest shows how keenly Bridgie felt Badger's pain, metaphorically speaking. I know I'd do something very similar if someone kicked any of my pets. The bond between Bridgie and Badger was fierce. After her murder, Badger would be found day after day sitting at the cottage doorstep, awaiting Bridgie's return. She never came. In 1894, Bridgie's mother, Bridget, died. This changed Bridgie. Her mother was buried in an unmarked grave outside the local cemetery's wall, and thus outside of the church's Catholic consecrated ground. This would have been because of Bridget's beliefs. A knowledgeable woman, she was well-versed in ancient Irish traditions and faith, being a strong believer in the existence of fairies. Mother and daughter were close. I can tell they were close because not only did Bridgie invoke her mother's name during this horrid affair, but also after her mother's death, Bridgie developed the habit of visiting the local fairy forts. Beliefs named such places as the treading ground of the good folk, otherwise known as fairies. In my eyes, Bridgie spent time in these fairy forts to feel closer to her mother, who I'd wager probably took her there as a child, telling her stories of Irish folklore and how to be kind to fairies when she was so small. Along the way, I'd also wager that Bridget passed her folk knowledge onto her strong, determined little daughter. Bridgie's husband Michael was born in May 1864. He was the eldest with two younger siblings named Margaret and Patrick. I don't know much about his childhood, but I do know that he was smart enough to become a cooper, a lucrative trade that had him making barrels and butter firkins for a nearby creamery and local farmers. He was smart and practical, turning the old thatched cabin the couple and his in-laws used to live in into a workshop once they moved into their labourer's cottage. After their marriage, Michael moved in with Bridgie into her family's new labourer's cottage. He would live with his wife and his father and mother-in-law until the night of Bridgie's murder. For four years before that night, Michael worked in Clonmel during the week and came home at the weekend. This would fuel the rumours that during their time apart, he was cheating on her and she on him. Michael was isolated, there's really no denying it. Unlike Bridgie, none of his family lived nearby, so he was thrown into a community full of those who knew Bridgie and her parents first and best. This seemed to have bothered Michael, as will become obvious in his trial testimony. However, like his wife, Michael prided himself in his taste in clothes. From a special report, we get a clear picture of Michael Clary. He is, quote, a well-dressed man with a high-receding forehead, unquote, who dressed in a light grey tweed three-piece suit. Bridgie called him Mike. I will not be. Bridgie and Michael's relationship was unusual for the time. We tend to have this idea that in the past, in the 19th century, people always married young, but this isn't the case. They wed when Bridgie was 18 and Michael was 27, which was strangely a young age for a woman to marry at the time. There was also a 10-year age gap, which was also a little bit strange. We can tell it's strange because if you look at the marriage records and the census from that time, Bridgie and Michael are evidently outliers from a normal trend of people who are in their 20s getting married, and the age gap is usually a little bit shorter between them. After seven and a half years of marriage, they had no children, which would have been murmured about behind their backs. They grew up in a very Catholic community, so they would have presumably been having unprotected sex, and the fact they couldn't create a child 
would have been something that was kind of whispered about and definitely didn't go unnoticed. But they seemed to enjoy their child-free life. Both of them could read and write, were self-employed, dressed well, and to the naked eye were doing better than their neighbours. Bridgie carried herself with an air of confidence, and Michael's Cooper business thrived, with a journalist from the Dublin Daily Express writing that their cottage, quote, is furnished with everything usually found in a house of its class, and the family appear to have been in very comfortable circumstances considering their station in life. I doubt in Catholic Ireland in the late 19th century that the Clarys would have chosen not to have children. It's more likely that Michael was sterile. He would marry twice more after Bridgie's murder, and neither of those unions produced children either. Tension was likely a familiar third wheel in their marriage. Bridgie's family was close by, Michael was isolated. People gossiped about their rumoured infidelity. Even when Michael was home, a significant portion of Bridgie's attention was devoted to taking care of her elderly parents. During his cross-examination in court, Michael would speak about their marriage. Quote, We were not great at all, only for about the last 12 months. Anyone in the country who wished to tell the truth would say that I worked here in this town of Clonmel four years ago. When they could do nothing to me, they were running away with my character behind my back to my wife. Her father used to say, oh, it's seldom he will come home to her now. He has plenty of women. On one occasion, she fell on the road and said I put a rope before her to kill her. When he says this, Michael is stressed, being charged with murder, and he's just seen his friends and family testify against him. To me, this outburst is the culmination of years of resentment towards Bridgie, her independence, and a support system that he felt ostracised by. Despite this, the couple appeared to have had some smooth patches in their relationship. Before she got ill, Bridgie gifted Michael a blue handkerchief. Blue like her dress and matching jacket. Blue like the ribbon on her black hat. An observer from the Dublin Daily Express wrote that, quote, Mrs Clary was a comely young woman, and her husband's affection for her appeared to deepen as the years passed. Bridgie, Michael, Patrick and Bridget got their labourer's cottage by unconventional means. When the cottage was built, it was exclusively meant for labourers. Both married couples tried to secure the cottage as their own, but their application was refused as none of the four were labourers anymore. Patrick, the only one who could claim the title, was too old by then to be working regularly. The cottage went to another tenant. Then something peculiar happened. It's written that the fairies made such a noise on moonlit nights in a nearby fairy fort that they ended up chasing the tenant away as he simply couldn't cope with the wails and cries that kept him from sleep. Funnily enough, following this, Bridgie, Michael, Patrick and Bridget became tenants of the cottage. And, wouldn't you know it, once they moved in, the fairies made noise no more. Those of us who are somewhat sceptical says this sounds like the nocturnal noises might not have been that of the good folk at all, but rather a racket made by Bridgie and her lot to chase away the tenant. This was never proved, but I think it gives you a really good idea of the stubbornness of the Clarys and Bolands, as well as the fact that they may have used the Fae to do things that would otherwise have been frowned upon. They wanted the cottage, so they got it. In 1891, Bridgie's father, Patrick Boland, is listed as the official tenant of their cottage. So, even though it was technically Patrick's cottage, Bridgie and Michael got the only bedroom. Patrick slept in a small adjacent room that was used to store grain, eggs, and Patrick's straw bed. It was basically a cupboard. His daughter and her husband slept in a double bed with a cast iron bed frame. Allowing his daughter to have the bedroom and the comforts that came with it just shows how devoted Patrick was to Bridgie, as well as, potentially, his awareness that it was on her who he depended. The cottage itself was near a fairy fort in Kyla Negranach and built on a rath, i.e. an old fort or a fairy fort. I'm doing my best to pronounce those two Irish words and I really apologise if it's not right. I tried to find pronunciation guides online but couldn't really get any help. The very fact that a house was allowed to be built on a rath means local attitudes were changing. 
no longer were people wary of building on land that had belonged to the good folk. This would not have happened in the past. As the entirety of Bridgie's demise happens in this cottage, I think it's important for you to have a clear idea of what it looked like. Outside the home were signs that Bridgie and Michael were taking steps to raise their station in life even further by buying a pig. A shed behind the cottage contained timber, twigs and corn, likely for a pigsty that had recently been built nearby. As for the cottage itself, it had a high-pitched slate roof with a chimney in each gable, glass windows and wooden shutters. Inside were three rooms, the kitchen and two bedrooms. The fireplace was on the kitchen's inner wall. It was brick, about four feet wide, fronted by a grate. Bridgie spends her last moments looking through those iron bars. Remarkably, there's a first-hand account of what it's like to approach Bridgie's home, written in the Irish Examiner. Quote, When we drove up, a dog that had been sitting on the doorstep trotted out to meet the visitors, whom he followed in their tour of inspection. A passage dividing the rear of the house from a stable and a fowl house enabled us to peer into the kitchen and bedrooms. We saw the fireplace, where a little white ash remained. On each side was an old-fashioned wooden chair, with a low seat, rendered more comfortable by a straw pad. In the kitchen also were two of three stools, a small deal table, and a gaudy candlestick or two. Into the bedrooms it was not easy to look. We could see some tumbled white cloths in Bridgie Clary's room, and the whole house appeared to be in the utmost disorder. It was locked and looked lonely, and as the dog resumed his seat under the half-door and began once more to wear that aspect of resignation which he bore when the visitors disturbed his watching and waiting. That dog is Badger, waiting for Bridgie. On Monday the 4th of March, 1895, a thick carpet of snow covered Tipperary. Sunday had seen heavy snowfall. As the sun rose on her cottage, Bridgie dressed herself and left her home on a walk to either deliver eggs or to secure payment for eggs she had already provided to John and Kate Dunn, distant neighbours and family friends. Snow didn't stop Bridgie from making a walk to their home, and Snow also didn't stop her from waiting on their doorstep when her knocks went unanswered. I'm not sure how long passed, perhaps an hour, perhaps more, but Bridgie stubbornly waited in the cold before resigning herself to a failed endeavour and walked home. Back home, Bridgie pulled up a chair to the fireplace. Warmth from its flames lapped at her face, but no matter how long she sat there, she couldn't get warm. Sleep didn't help to remedy her chill. The following day, a violent headache descended upon Bridgie, accompanied by shivering which rendered her bedridden for the rest of the week. I can't be sure whether this was pneumonia, which seems likely, or another ailment, but either way she was so affected by the sickness that she looked noticeably different, frankly awful, as she lay tucked up in bed. For days, Bridgie had the same old surroundings to look at. A clock ticked in one corner of her bedroom. Through its open door she could see the kitchen, with its earthen floor, table, chairs and bench, the cupboard and dresser against the walls. Within her room, a wooden floor made the bedroom a touch more luxurious than the kitchen, suiting the more intimate space. Known to only her and Michael was the existence of a wooden trunk hidden under their bed. Within it, a coffee canister full of their savings, £20 worth of banknotes rolled up tight. Perhaps she stared at the religious pictures hung on the walls, or the medals, or the crucifix, or perhaps her prized sewing machine that sat patiently in one corner. But I think her attention would have been diverted to her black straw hat hanging on a hook, decorated with feathers from her beloved hens. Bridgie had a strong bond with Doty and Badger, so it stands to reason that her hens had a special place in her heart. Concern about Bridgie had spread throughout the small community. This led John Dunn, the very man who Bridgie went to see on Monday, to visit her. When he saw Bridgie in bed, John said something that I wager put these deadly events in motion. He exclaimed, quote, That is not Bridget Boland, before pointing out that one of her legs looked longer. Patrick, 
Michael, and everyone in Tipperary at the time, would have known that this difference in height was an indisputable sign that the being lying in bed was not Bridgie Clary. Instead, she had been replaced by a changeling. John Dunn was Patrick Boland's cousin, and by the time Bridgie fell sick, he was in his 50s. Potentially bilingual in Irish as well as English, he and his wife Kate Dunn were respected members of the community and were reported to have extraordinary powers of divination. Such abilities commanded some respect in the late 19th century, but that was nothing close to the reverence John and Kate would have been treated with in the early 1800s and 18th century, before the English's further encroachment on Irish culture, politics and daily life. Bridgie and Michael's generations learnt to read and write, unlike their elders. This level of education meant that younger generations could work in more modern metropolitan areas like Clonmel, with less exposure to Irish folk learning and more exposure to English newspapers, resulting in less ingrained respect for people like John and Kate. John was a shanachy, an oral storyteller, guardian of Irish history and keeper of old knowledge of charms, spells and fairies. Angela Bork writes that the role of Shanachie was one occupied by the disabled and the elderly, granting them a form of social insurance. Their importance extended beyond how useful they were for manual labour, this knowledge protecting otherwise potentially marginalised individuals. John fits in this category as he walked with a limp due to a fracture which had left his right leg shorter than his left. Not only did this make manual labour difficult for him, but it also meant that he had one of the qualities associated with those who had been touched by fairies. Having one leg shorter than another is a sign that one had run into the fae, which in previous centuries would have added to John's weight in the community, lending prestige to his knowledge of Irish folk culture, remedies and charms. John would have known all there is to know about fairy tradition, and indeed is described as fairy-ridden in contemporary newspapers. This is a dismissive way for conservative Anglophile newspapers to explain away John's belief in the fairies that he believed walked the roads of Tipperary. John himself told others that he was regularly taken away by the fairies. A journalist wrote, quote, No man or woman in the district had died who has not been seen in post-mortem form by this old man. This man mentioned that he had a pain in his back, the result of having been taken out of his bed by the fairies and placed in his yard. His faith in the people of the forts and wrath could not be shaken. There was no night of his life on which he did not hear the fairies outside of his house, and sometimes they were playing hurling matches. From this account, you can see how vocal John was about his run-ins with the Fae, proud of his status as Shanachie. And I'd just like to say that it can be really easy to make fun of someone for believing in fairies and such, but you have to remember that this was part of Irish culture and folk belief and everything at the time. It's not fair to make fun of John Donne for believing in the Fae. It's fair to criticise him for what happens from now on, but it's just incredibly reductive just to label it as believing as people with wings on their backs. Fairies or the good folk were a lot more than just a Tinkerbell image. They were a way to interact with nature and the landscape and to defy and kind of work your way around social taboos and norms, which I'm going to go into explaining just a little bit. John's loss of his importance in the community likely hit him hard. He and Kate were evidently used to being treated as authorities. After seeing the ill Bridgie, John seized the opportunity to voice his opinion that she was a changeling, and therefore he was the one who knew how to help and he was the authority that Michael would be paying attention to. It is reported that following seeing Bridgie, John and Kate, quote, advised Michael to procure from a woman in Fethard a herb known as the Seven Cure. It failed to produce the desired result, whereupon their advisers declared that it had been prepared and administered in the wrong manner. They then directed him to go at once to Dennis Ganey. Dennis Ganey is a local herb or fairy doctor who will become significant later. Despite the seven cure not working, one of the things a Shanachie like John knew was other ways to rid homes of changelings. His interjections will become crucial to Michael Clary's state of mind, 
and his actions on the night Bridgie is murdered. Before we go any further, you need to understand why being accused of being a changeling resulted in Bridgie being burnt by her husband, which means I need to explain the significance of fairies in Irish folklore and culture. People didn't always use the term fairies or invoke their existence literally. Fairies were often used as metaphors for taboo issues or to dodge questions, both methods hinting someone didn't want to divulge certain events. For example, if a woman suffered a difficult childbirth and lost her baby, the baby's absence could be explained away as the child having been taken by the good folk. Neighbours would have understood that to mention fairies in this context was a sign that further questions were unwelcome as who can understand why fairies do what they do? And in the same vein, who also wants to spend more time talking about a really painful moment in their life accompanied by sadness and heartbreak? The Fae were also used as a way to explain why neurodivergent, disabled, eccentric or ill people were the way they were. A woman was infertile because she was touched by the Fae. A child disliked eye contact, like me, or had a limb difference because of a run-in with fairies. An old woman with dementia spoke about times long gone because she had spent too much time in the land of the good folk. However, there was another use for fairies. Fairies and changelings were also used to legitimise killing disabled or unwanted children and adults by deeming them changelings. Changelings are doppelgangers of real people who have been abducted by fairies. The real human was stolen away to the land of the fairies, while the changeling imitated them in the human world. This didn't always mean that the individual in question was mistreated. There was a belief that the real individual was being treated well in the fairy realm, so you should treat the changeling well too, or they might hurt your beloved in revenge for any harm done to the changeling. The opposite is also true though. Beliefs around fairies taught that you should have empathy for difficult kids and treat misbehaving children kindly, for they might be a changeling, and if you were to hurt a changeling, your real child would be hurt by the fairies in revenge. To find a changeling, there are a series of tests to put them through, and one is to ask them who they are. Changelings were believed to be unable to lie, so this question would reveal the imposter. Another sign someone was a changeling was if they had a sudden change in appearance, like appearing taller or looking different. This is what happened to Bridgie. Getting the real person back was a challenge. Burning the changeling was the accepted method due to the belief that the changeling's cries of pain would bring their fairy parents to your door, eager to swap the injured changeling with the human so they could treat its wounds. Archaeological digs have uncovered the remains of babies with charred skulls, which likely came from people holding them against a fire to rid themselves of a suspected changeling. This was fairly common in the 14th century, and judging by the upcoming events, Michael Clary must have heard stories of this kind of treatment. Those burning babies might have been on his mind when he looked into his dishevelled wife's eyes. On Saturday the 9th of March, Bridgie felt even worse. Her cousin, Joanna Burke, was by her side for almost all of this ordeal. Joanna, also known as Han, Hanny, or Hannah, is crucial to understanding how the events of Saturday the 16th of March unfolded. She testified in court that Bridgie thought she had just caught another cold. Patrick and Michael decided that Bridgie needed to see a doctor, so her dad walked four miles in the rain to Dr. William Crean in Feffard. Dr. Crean is a pathetic man. He did not come on Saturday. He did not come on Monday either, even after Michael himself walked those four miles to request his assistance. This delay in Dr. Crean's attending Bridgie, aiding her and therefore calming Michael's worry, has consequences. With the doctor's absence, Michael's concern grew. Bridgie was a healthy woman. She should have been better by now. Without Dr. Crean's medical aid, there was a void that just needed to be filled. And then along came John Dunn. Wednesday the 13th of March brought with it not Dr. Crean, but the local priest, Father Ryan, who visited the bedridden Bridgie. He said of her, quote, I found her in bed in a room in her own house. 
She was in a very nervous state, and I thought possibly hysterical. Those were all the signs I then observed about her, and I came to the conclusion that it might be the beginning of mental derangement. I remained with her about 20 minutes. She did not converse with me except professionally as a priest. Her conversation was coherent and intelligent. Father Ryan was so concerned about Bridgie's state that he actually administered the last rites. He would later explain in court that this was because he had seen brain fever set in with patients that had Bridgie's symptoms and was worried that she didn't have long left. This must have been terrifying for Bridgie, lying in bed, feeling awful, and having a priest give her the last rites. On the same day, four days after Patrick visited in the rain, Dr. Crean visited Bridgie. He ruled that Bridgie was suffering from a slight bronchial catarrh and anxiety. With all the audacity of a self-important local physician with a drinking problem, which Dr. Crean had, and yet was repeatedly protected from the consequences by his medical professionals, Dr. Crean would later say in court that her, quote, nervous excitement, unquote, could have been caused by dyspepsia, otherwise known as indigestion. It seems that women's health concerns weren't taken seriously back then, either. He prescribed medicine and did not see her again. He also had the cheek to report Bridgie as being irritable, but it was no wonder she was annoyed. He was late in visiting her and he offered a really meagre remedy. I really cannot overstate my contempt for this man. Had he done his job and visited Bridgie when he was meant to, and also given a realistic expectation of her treatment, all of this could have been avoided and Bridgie could have lived a long and happy life. But he didn't, so part of the blame lies at his door too if you ask me. This bottle of medicine was given to Michael, who was to administer it to Bridgie. It came in a mineral water bottle and was a thick yellowish liquid. A printed label indicated that four teaspoonfuls of the mixture was to be taken in a little water three times a day. After Bridgie's murder, this bottle would be found in her bedroom, completely untouched. John Dunn also visited Bridgie on Wednesday. While the priest and the doctor were with Bridgie, John asked Michael how Bridgie was. Michael responded that she was only middling. Michael then said, quote, I have something here that will help her. They are herbs I got from that woman in Fethard. Later, John saw him give these herbs to Bridgie. After the priest and the doctor were gone, Bridgie sent for her aunt, Mary Kennedy, her dad's sister. Bridgie complained of a pain in her head and then confided something important in Mary. Bridgie said that Michael was trying to make a fairy of her and that he had tried to burn her three months prior. There's no way to tell whether this is true, but if it is true, which I'm inclined to believe, this shows that a dangerous precedent was already set, and a pattern of behaviour for Michael was beginning to emerge. Michael was potentially already using the Fae as an excuse to rid himself of his wife. Tellingly, Bridgie also invoked her mother at this moment. To Mary, Bridgie said that, quote, if her mother was alive, she wouldn't be in this way. To me, this signifies that Bridgie's mother, Bridget, was a powerful enough figure that Michael would never have mistreated Bridgie on her watch. Bridget Boland must have been a formidable woman. On her sickbed, Bridgie longed for her mum's presence and her strong hand. Thursday the 14th of March dawns, and with it, a new urgency arose in Michael. On his way to go and get Father Ryan to visit his wife yet again, he called up Mary Kennedy's house and asked her to go and keep Bridgie company, which she did. His trip to Father Ryan would be unsuccessful, as Father Ryan was adamant that there wasn't anything else he could do. As a priest of the Catholic faith, he was forbidden from spending any time alone with a woman than was strictly necessary, but I would wager that Bridgie's sickness was also something that he wanted to avoid. Upon returning home, Michael sent a note to John via a neighbouring woman named Mary Smith. When John opened the letter, he read Michael's scrawled words, which read, quote, He could not depend on the lot that was about him. John Dunn headed straight over. Michael's paranoia was starting to show. I'd wager he was frustrated at Father Ryan's refusal to visit Bridgie, 
and dismissed Mary's presence as ineffectual. Yet, he still didn't want to give Bridgie the doctor's medicine. Michael had another idea. Upon meeting with Michael at the cottage, John would later claim that Michael said, quote, I have something now that will cure her. I have herbs that there is nine cures in. It will be very hard to make her take this. You must assist me with her, and she will be cured then. Michael was referring to the herbs given to him by one Dennis Ganey. I doubt the herb doctor anticipated the manner in which Michael would administer them. That evening, Mary and William Simpson, neighbours of the Clarys, came to visit the ailing Bridgie. Bridgie's friendship with William Simpson was the subject of speculation. Both were ambitious, attractive, intelligent, and younger than their spouses. William was ten years younger than his wife Mary, and Bridgie and Michael had a nine-year age gap. When Michael was away in Clonmel during the week, it was rumoured that Bridgie and William became more than friends, but there's no proof to substantiate this claim. It's likely just gossip. We do know that the pair were good enough friends for Bridgie to tell William that she had bought a striking blue handkerchief for her husband, a detail I doubt she would have just told anyone. Between 9pm and 10pm, William and Mary went to see Bridgie. Outside the cottage, they met Joanna, who said Bridgie was being given some herbs so they couldn't go in. To their surprise, every single one of the shutters was closed and the front door was locked. However, William could still hear a sound coming from the bedroom. It was loud. Someone was yelling, Take it, you witch, or we will kill you. Inside the cottage, Michael had decided to take matters into his own hands. He had prepared the nine cure herbs in the presence of John and three of Bridgie's cousins. Michael had the windows shuttered up, the door locked, and the keyhole and every single crevice filled up with paper. John had probably told Michael that by adopting these precautions, no other fairy could gain admittance and come to the assistance of the changeling they were about to exercise. The very changeling that they thought had taken the form of Bridgie Clary. Inside the cottage, Michael took a heavy bottom saucepan and boiled some milk with the herbs Dennis Ganey had given him. The saucepan in one hand, a spoon in the other, Michael fed Bridgie the milk and herb mix and interrogated her as to her true identity. During the entire ordeal, Bridgie was forcibly pinned down on the bed by John Dunn and her four cousins. Only when the door was suddenly opened from the inside were William, Mary and Joanna let in. When the front door opened, Mary Simpson said she heard the men say, away she goes, as if they were driving something out. Through the door, Mary saw Bridgie being held on the bed by John Dunn, Patrick Kennedy, William Kennedy and James Kennedy. John was holding her by the head, Patrick was holding her by the arm on the right side, and John was holding her on to the left. William was lying on her legs. Even though this must have been incredibly distressing, Bridgie wasn't screaming at this stage. Mary heard Michael say, All that was inside should stay inside and all that was outside should stay outside. She heard Michael give Bridgie the herbs and say, Take this, in the name of God, and Bridgie Clary, come back to me in the name of God. William went into even more detail about what he saw inside the cottage. He said, quote, There was urine and water thrown on her. I did not see the persons who threw it as they were in a cluster. I heard the urine called for and the words used, throw it on her. Bridgie cried out for them to leave me alone. Michael bent over and tried to give her a spoonful of herbs mixed with boiling milk. After the mixture had gone down her throat, she swallowed and one of the men held their hand over her mouth for a couple of minutes so she couldn't spit it out. Bridgie was then restrained on her bed for an extra ten minutes. After being restrained, John ordered Bridgie to be brought to the fire. When they were carrying her to the fire, Patrick heard Bridgie yell for them not to make a herring of her. Dead as a herring back then had the same connotations as dead as a dodo does now, meaning that Bridgie was terrified that her loved ones were going to go too far. She was held close to the fire for about five minutes, but not quite close enough to be burned. The fire was not fully lit at this point. 
According to court testimony, quote, The lower part was lighting, but the upper part wouldn't have boiled a kettle. This would change the following night. All of the yelling and abuse had gone to Michael, further exacerbating his fragile state of mind. Amongst the chaos and his wife kneeling by the fireplace, he had the audacity to say to Bridgie's own father, Don't you know it is with an old witch I am sleeping? To which Patrick angrily replied, You are not. You are sleeping with my daughter. As she stared into the glowing coals, Michael asked Bridgie again if she was his wife in the name of the father, the son, and the Holy Ghost. Bridgie didn't reply at first, so the question was asked twice more. Finally, Patrick Boland asked the question and Bridgie replied, Yes, Dada. This didn't satisfy the men. They shook her and she screamed. No one did anything to stop Bridgie from being treated this way. Satisfied at last that it really was Bridgie Clary in front of them, Bridgie was brought back to her bed. Her aunt Mary Kennedy had arrived by then, so Mary Kennedy and Mary Simpson put a clean chemise on Bridgie as her striped flannelette she was wearing before had been singed by the fire. William was there to see the men ask Bridgie if she knew them, and she said yes. They all seemed delighted at this, and thought they now had her back. Bridgie must have been exhausted and utterly shaken. Bridgie's ordeal was over before midnight, and it was a good job too, as Bridgie's dad Patrick would claim that all questions had to be answered before midnight, or the changeling could not be exercised. To Patrick this was essential because he claimed that Bridgie had been replaced by a changeling at 12am the previous night, meaning that they had 24 hours to get the quote-unquote real Bridgie back. Later that night, Bridgie was sitting on the side of her bed when she suddenly called out the quote, The peelers are out the window and mind me now. Michael Clary was seen picking up a utensil, which he threw over Bridgie's head at the window, where she said the police were. I don't know why she said this, as the police weren't seen near her cottage until much later. Either she was seeing things which in her distressed and ill state wouldn't be a surprise, or she was trying to make Michael aware that the police would hear of anything that had happened to her, reminding him that he had them to answer to if he went too far. It's also possible that she just wanted to scare her husband and make him leave her alone. Michael was not only under strain due to Bridgie's illness, but also because he had received some devastating news the night before. His father had died. Curiously, Patrick Boland, Michael Kennedy, Patrick Kennedy, James Kennedy and William Kennedy would attend the wake that evening after the milk and herbs incident. Michael, however would not. He didn't go to his own father's wake. On returning from the wake in the early hours of the morning, Patrick spoke to his daughter and said she seemed okay. Only Aunt Mary was by her side then. There was no sign of Michael. As the sun rose on the cottage on Friday the 15th of March, Bridgie was still bedridden. Of small consolation was the fact that Father Ryan had at last given in to Michael's pleas and visited Bridgie once again. So dire was Bridgie's state that she was given what Father Ryan thought might be her final mass. Later saying that, quote, She was more nervous and more excited than I saw her on Wednesday. Before leaving, I asked Michael if he had given Bridgie Dr. Korean's medicine. His answer was something to the effect that he had no faith in the doctor's medicine. I said what a pity it was to give the trouble to a doctor of calling him in and not to give his medicine. I told him that I thought the medicine was good and that he ought to give it to her. Michael said, People may have some remedy of their own that might do more good than doctor's medicine. Michael's disdain for Dr. Crean's remedy is blatant here. The fact that he made mention of some other remedy that might do more good than a doctor's medicine heavily suggests that Michael was ignoring medical advice. Instead, Michael was relying on the instruction of John Dunn, and was now following the procedure to rid himself of a changeling, instead of helping his wife get better. Whether Michael's whole changeling line of argument was an excuse that allowed him to take advantage of his wife's weakened state and kill her, or a true belief he had in the Fae, we will never really know. William Simpson visited later on Friday morning. Michael and John were outside the cottage talking together, and William walked past them into the cottage. 
Bridgie seemed weaker and looked different. However, she was drinking milk for nourishment and her cousin Joanna was with her. Joanna was helping out as much as she could, keeping her cousin company and even taking over her housework by washing the couple's shirts. Angela Bork theorises that Joanna might have been jealous of Bridgie, but I respectfully disagree with this. Joanna would closely attend Bridgie over the next few days, and when the case was brought to court, she quickly became the chief witness who testified against her family, or to get justice for Bridgie. Joanna clearly adored her cousin, and later she would even fight to save Bridgie when she lay burning on the kitchen floor and try to run to go and get the police. With Joanna by her side, and I imagine Badger probably laying at the foot of the bed, William asked Bridgie if she recognised him, to which she answered that she did. William pointed to her beloved dog Badger, whom Bridgie also recognised. Bridgie was slowly regaining her senses, and things seemed to be looking up for her. It's Friday morning, and Bridgie is still alive. Take a moment with me to think about the people in your life. Someone who adores their cats or dogs. Someone who tinkers with possessions to make them uniquely theirs. Someone who breathes life into the clothes they wear, or someone whose achievements are worn proudly on their sleeve. Glints of Bridgie can be seen in all of these people. Bridgie Clary was a smart, ambitious, confident and compassionate woman, full of love and wit, and she should have lived a long life. Look closely enough at the people you surround yourself with, and amongst them you can find Bridgie. Remember her like I will remember her. Thank you for staying with me this long. If you're listening on Spotify, then I recommend rating this podcast. Five stars would be lovely and following it as well so you don't miss out on any updates. If this is your first time watching or listening to me, thank you so much for sticking around and I'd love it if you stayed a little while longer. If you're on YouTube, leave a comment below about what you think about Bridgie's life so far, as it makes the algorithm lovely and I really want to know what you think of her. I've been researching her for months now and it feels really sad to tell other people about her to be honest, but it's important that we recognise that she's a victim and she deserves to be remembered. You can follow me at Zoe Dells on Instagram, TikTok, Blue Sky, Tumblr and loads of other things. And I also have my website live now which sells art that I create along with key rings and bags and hard enamel pins. Every single one of which has been designed by me. And you can find it at houseofmugwort.com. Finally, the sources for Bridgie's case will be listed in the description in YouTube and they'll also be in my old sin section on my website, House of Mugwort. Thank you so much for sticking around and remember Bridgie. Hello. That's my cat. Hey, Rosie.